Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, how's your week been? I trust you're in a good place. If for some reason, though, you're not, I'm hoping that taking a listen to our guest today might just cure you of whatever's ailing. I guarantee you're going to feel a little bit better for sure. Our chat today is with singer, guitarist and songwriter Mark Farner, who's best known as the lead vocalist and lead guitarist for the American hard rock band Grand Funk Railroad. Let me remind you of one of their biggest hits. the early 70s and Grand Funk Railroad's founding members Don Brewer, Mel Sucker and Mark Farner were precursors of heavy metal and were promoted widely as the loudest rock and roll band in the world. For a hard rocker, Mark Farner is surprisingly religious. As you get to know him a little bit here, you'll understand why Mark has always been passionate about spreading love. Hi Sandy Kay. Hi, a very big welcome to A Breath of Fresh Air. Thank you. Where do we find you? At my home rehearsal facility in Michigan, in the tip of the mitt. Your history is quite amazing, Mark, and I'm hoping you don't mind taking us all for a walk down memory lane. Of course, everybody knows you for founding Grand Funk Railroad, but you were doing lots of work before that, weren't you? Yes, and I've been active in the art of love, growing in love, All through my life, I've been at it a while. I know that's been your edict for some time, but you can't have started off like that, could you? Well, my father died when I was nine years old, and he was a veteran, a World War II veteran, tank driver. My mother was the first woman in the United States to weld on Sherman tanks, which was the type of tank that my father was a driver of. When he passed, my whole life changed. All the kids, there was four of us at the time, and we all felt this amazing loss. And it was watching the family go from this happy singing together, harmonizing together, you know, making music every weekend together to this everybody's down in the dumps. And that's... When I was nine years old is when I, my father had just bought our first television set and it was on and it was in the living room. And I walked out of the dining room through the corridor into the living room and uh, Billy Graham was on the television set. He was at a, a stadium in Flint, Michigan, and he was doing this drive as it was like a revival. As I'm walking by, he says, do you need a touch from God? Do you need Jesus to touch your life? And I'm, I'm looking over him. I said, hell yeah, are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think I could use it. <laughs> and he says, come over here and put your hand on it. And I, you know, a nine-year-old kid, I'm, is he talking about I'm looking around? I'm the only one in the room. He must be talking to me. <laughs> You know, I go over and I put my hand on the TV and I prayed with Billy Graham. My father was a very spiritual man and he was full of love. I saw that love in him. I saw how people admired that love in him. And I always wanted to be like that. And I am slowly achieving it. Both of Mark's parents came from a place of love and his Cherokee ancestry on his mother's side brought the family a good deal of spirituality too. My great-grandmother was full blood. And what part did that play in your upbringing? Well, my mother would speak very fondly of my great-grandmother, Elizabeth Ko'one, and she married 
a New York City Jewish man, uh, Jones, Abraham Jones. Wow. Yeah. So uh, she said that my grandmother had healing hands and that people would bring sick folks over to my grandmother just to have her lay hands on them. And uh, she said people would walk out of there healed, Mark. She had it. And I esteem that to be a culmination of love. Before my dad passed, I saw that love and I saw the reaction of people to that. And it was in the music that they would play every Sunday. When I tell this to you, it's like I'm reliving it, Sandy. I see those great big people and I'm still this little three, four-year-old kid and listening to them sing and watching them play these great big instruments. And now I'm playing. <laughs> I couldn't hardly wait till Sunday. And we always had something wonderful to eat, either Southern fried chicken with hockey puck dumplings <laughs> or uh, sloppy joes. What's uh, that? Sloppy joe is ground beef with onions and garlic and a cream tomato sauce with some spices in there. Sloppy Joe kind of gets all over you when you eat it. You know, you're holding it and right. falling. Hence the name. <laughs> yeah. So did you aspire to be a musician from that tender age? I didn't have it within me to imagine myself playing because those people played so good. It was like, oh my God, I was... I was completely enamored by the whole adventure every Sunday. I never imagined that I would be able to play like this. What Not sort of music were they playing? Southern bluegrass stuff and gospel. The one that sticks out the most is, I got peace like a river. I got peace like a river. I got peace like a river in my soul, in my soul. I got peace like a river. I got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river in my soul. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river. I've got peace like a river in my soul. When my aunts and my grandmother and my mother, uh, all, and all the women were singing, I'm telling you something, it was like angels, Sandy. Yeah, it, that's the way it came through to my ears. And everybody would just be hugging each other and loving. And that was part of uh -huh. the experience. And I didn't really realize until I was 15 years old that I wanted to play. I wanted to play football. I was defensive linebacker over center. I was in on every tackle because I loved to hear my name called on the loudspeaker. <laughs> <laughs> they say, that was Farner number 66 in on the tackle. Boy, I'd be just prancing across that <laughs> And my mother knew this about me. And when I had some injuries and the, the doctor told my mother, there's no way I could play football or run track that year. And she felt so sorry for me that she got me guitar lessons, six guitar lessons, and she rented an acoustic guitar, and, and I learned how to play. And then uh, after the third lesson, it was hunting season for uh, ringneck pheasant in Michigan, and the guitar teacher had a, an accident with a 12-gauge, shot himself in the foot. So no more lessons. So that first band that you started playing with was called Terry Knight and the Pack. Terry Knight and the Pack came along after... I had been in Mojo and the Nightwalkers. That was our first band. Right. And uh, the Geneseans. And then we were the derelicts. <laughs> we had, uh, you know, different incarnations working up to when I went with Terry and I in the pack. Can you judge a man by the way he wears his hair? Can you read his mind 
with Terry Knight and the Pack, I played bass. They said, can you play a bass? I said, I played tuba in the marching band. <laughs> I don't know if I could play a bass. So I went, I got a bass. Come to find out, I could play bass. Uh, it wasn't that hard. But I sang background, Don Brewer, the drummer for Grand Funk Railroad. He was a drummer in Terry Knight and the Pack. And him and I and Kurt Johnson would sing harmonies together behind Terry. And, and it made Terry sound good. before you decided to set up Grand Funk Railroad. When and why did you make that decision? Well, because of the, the last uh, incarnation of the band that we were in, the pack, we whittled it down to just the fabulous pack, they would call us. We had an opportunity to go to the East Coast and they told us that if we would go play some promotional gigs that we could then make some real money. So we left Michigan and we went out there with a U-Haul trailer and all of our equipment. A big snowstorm hit and we were stranded on Cape Cod. We were eating oatmeal with water that we melted down the snow, freezing our asses off. And when we got back, two of the guys in the band were married. And their wives were threatening divorce and they had to quit the band. So there we were, guitar player and keyboard player were out of the band. I looked over at Brewer, I said, let's get some musicians that don't even have girlfriends. We don't want the women <laughs> ruining our band. So when we got back to Michigan, we were waiting to get in to talk to these people because we wanted to find out what happened to our money. And as we're waiting out there, the band that was rehearsing had a good bass player. And I looked over at Don. I said, are you listening to this bass player? He says, yeah, man. He says, that guy can play. And when they took a break, lo and behold, out walks Mel Shocker. And Mel Shocker and I went to school together. We were friends. And I said, Melvin, I didn't know that you were playing with these guys. Well, it was Question Mark and the Mysterians who had a, a hit with 96 Tears. what we were up to. We're going to start a band. 
he says, oh yeah, man, I am so ready to leave this band. He was having problems and they were having problems with him. Uh, so the following week, we were in the rehearsal facility. We were set up and playing and I was writing the first album. And that's how it started, the three piece Grand Funk. But we didn't know we were Grand Funk yet because Terry Knight had not really entered into the picture. It wasn't until we had been rehearsing for two or three weeks that Don came to rehearsal one day and said, listen, I've been in contact with Terry Knight and he's got some connections and we can get some real dates and we would play for free. Terry's connections saw the band booked for the first Atlanta Pop Festival in 1967. They didn't make any money, but the experience proved invaluable. We got up on that stage in front of 185,000 people and our lives changed. They loved what we were doing. They didn't want us to get off the stage. And then when they found out that these three kids in this garage band from Flint, Michigan, had this soulful music, they wanted more of it. We played on time, the whole, the entire on time album. And when you get 185,000 people getting down, man, I'm telling you what, that's some magic. sure were ready, and so were audiences everywhere. Their star was on the rise. Stay tuned as Mark tells us more. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for hanging in. If you're into Grand Funk Railroad's massive hit, I'm Your Captain, Mark Farner is about to explain it all. It must have been one of the first times that white boys were playing that sort of music. Well, we had been doing it all uh, our career. I mean, much as two or three years. <laughs> that was, you know, because I started playing when I was 15 and Grand Funk had our first million selling album when I was 20. But that was the kind of stuff that I loved, you know, was uh, soulful R&B. But mainstream audiences hadn't heard that sort of music coming out of white guys in those years, had they? That's right. And and we kind of introduced them mm. to that part. It's more of a, the R&B. It wasn't that we were doing blues. However, if you could do R&B, you can do blues. But we left the blues to the blues people, and we R&B'd it because we really love to dance. And we love to get an audience up on their feet and watch them dance. Jump into my action 
Terry Knight was a songwriter, and Terry gave us that name because he, he had a song that he had written called Grand Funk Railroad. It's a play off an actual railway system that runs through Windsor, Ontario, Canada, Michigan, and Ohio called Grand Trunk and Western. So he took it, did a little twist on the letters, Grand Funk and uh, Railroad. And when he recommended that we adopt that name, we all looked at each other and said, yeah, that's cool. That's a good name. You were an incredibly cool band, weren't you? I mean, you still are today, but when you first set out and you set audiences on fire, nobody could get enough of you, as you already mentioned from that first festival. In 1970 came the song, I'm Your Captain. That was huge for you too, wasn't it? Yes, and the orchestration that really emphasized that song and really makes it, I think it takes it into a spirituality that we couldn't have achieved it in any other fashion. It was Tommy Baker, who was the band leader on the Upbeat show in Cleveland, Ohio. And when we went to play as Terry Knight and the pack, we would play the Upbeat show. Uh, we always admired Tommy Baker because his band was tight. He was a horn player and he had all these great musicians. It just so happens that one time, when James Brown was on the show, the trumpet player blew a clam. And in, in the business, when you play a clam or blow a clam, it's not good. It's a, not a good experience. And so the reference to the clam came, and James Brown fired this guy right there, and he looks over at Tommy Baker, and he says, Tommy, can you read that chart? Tommy walks over with his horn and he nailed it. He had this musical ability, Tommy did. And when I was playing this lick for the owner of the station, David ended up uh, managing Joe Walsh and Glenn Fry. And I'm playing this to, to him then. He was just this young kid. I mean, he's like 15 years old or something. And I'm sh showing him the chords to... I'm your captain. And and Tommy Baker walks over and said, man, what, what is that song? I said, we're going to record it. It's called I'm Your Captain. He says, I got stuff in my head for that. He's, I'm hearing all this stuff right now when you're playing it, I'm hearing it. He says, when you get to the end of that refrain that you were just doing, I'm getting closer to my home. He said, just do that over and over and over. And he says, and when you can't do one more, when you are ready to give it up, do 10 more. <laughs> and I went, okay, buddy. <laughs> so that's what we did. We stretched it out and it gave Tommy Baker that time and that space to create the beauty and the passion that followed the message of the words. Music videos stifled creativity. 
in music because without a music video, that song meant whatever it meant to the individual listener with no explanation of a video acting out the parts and showing what it was supposed to be. Because of that, millions of people that heard that song have their own definition. It's like when somebody goes to a movie after they've read the book, they always say, I've never heard anyone say that. Yeah, they say, that movie sucked, man. The book was a lot better because our imagination is at work. Mark Fano, what did you have in mind, though, when you wrote that song? I prayed for that song. One night, I said, God, would you please give me a song that would reach and touch the hearts of those you want to get to? Bam. I go to bed. I wake up at like three in the morning. This song is on my mind. I grab my pen and paper because I have right next to my bed, I have a steno pad with a pen and so that I can write things down that come to me in the night because I've lost some of the best stuff I ever had, Sandy. I lost it because I said, oh, I'll remember that in the morning. morning. Yeah, I think we all do that. Yes. So there I was and and I was in a semi-conscious state of mind and these words started coming. Everybody listen to me and return me my ship. I'm your captain. I'm your captain, though I'm feeling mighty sick. It's like, and I knew that I couldn't go back to the top and and read. I had to keep going. And it was like this presence was completely saturating me with the spirit because I wasn't completely awake, but I wasn't sleeping by any means, but I was someplace between heaven and the planet. I was, my mind was there and these words just kept coming. writing a song, I would go back to the top and read it down, go to the second verse, and maybe I'd get a third verse. After reviewing the thought process, this was not conceived in that way. It was was its own birth. You just had to keep scribing to, to keep up with what was coming through you. Yes, and I was so exhausted at the end of writing this tune I remember putting that paper down, grabbed the sheet, and I threw it over me. I was gone. I was out like a light. But when I got up in the morning and I went out and I fixed my coffee and I'm looking at the horses out in the pasture, I grab my acoustic and I just pick it up and go, I'm like, wow, that's a pretty good lick. And then I hit this inversion of a C chord that I'd never hit before. But I held down the G and then reached over with my fingers and got to see it, and, and it chimed. There was a harmonic chime that happened that just captivated my attention. And I'm looking at my fingers going, wow, I better remember this. This is, man, this is some kind of chord right here, you know, and I'm looking at it. And as I'm studying, my fingers came to me that the words in the other room just might be a song. It was just all put out to me. I didn't rehearse it. I didn't come up. It just came out this way. How does that feel for you? It feels like God answered a prayer. And God is love, Sandy. And I felt the love. 
when I took it to rehearsal and I said, what do you guys think of this? And I hit the button and Don and Mel are looking at each other as this song is playing. They looked at me and they said, Mark, that song's a hit, man. That song is a hit. And they were right. It means whatever it means to whoever it is that's listening to it. How then do you move on to the next one? How do you top that? Where did you go to next? Well, I've never really intentionally went any direction. I've always gone on the feel. What's going on in my soul? And after I'm your captain, I mean, we did uh, E Pluribus Funk, and I got this Gibson SG, a white SG guitar from Stevie Marriott from Humble Pie. He brought it over when they opened our show at Shea Stadium. I played it, and my hand loved this guitar. It, it, it was very comfortable to me. So I started writing music, and this guitar brought the whole entire E Pluribus Funk album out of me. And it was inspired because this guitar has its own nature. It has its own uh, characteristic. I wrote, I Come Tumbling. People love that song. And on E Pluribus Funk was where foot stomping music came in. And I did that, and and the lead on uh, foot stomping. Does everybody want to? You know, they people love that stuff. Come on, everybody. We're gonna have a good time, yeah. Give me all that love that's in you. I'm gonna give you mine. I wanna hear some hand clapping. I want you to get in the groove. We're gonna play this foot stomping music. Everybody get in the groove, yeah. just went from I'm your captain into like E Pluribus Funk and people, especially guitar players, they just love E Pluribus Funk because of that guitar song. I've spoken to a lot of artists and asked them, you know, where they got inspiration for certain albums, certain songs. I don't think anybody's told me it's from the actual guitar that they're playing. I never realized that a specific guitar could make such a difference. Oh yeah. Do you still and play Gibson today? Well, the guitar that I play on stage now is the one I got in 96, and I call her Baby, because she's my baby. I got a backup, a backup to her, that then her name is Ruby. <laughs> you haven't got as many as Baby King had. No. Take me to the locomotion. What year was that? It's 1974, I think it was. It was a very good year. Todd Rundgren was producing. I went home for lunch and we were at the studio called The Swamp. And I went home for lunch this day on my way back to the studio and the driveway kind of snaked down through the woods. You couldn't just look back to it. And it's a beautiful sunshiny day. And I'm walking down the dirt road. And as I'm walking along, I hear the guys, they're out in the parking lot. And I start singing, everybody's doing a brand new dance now. And they start singing the backgrounds. Come on, baby, do the locomotion. <laughs> and I couldn't see them yet, but I'm still, you know, singing. I'm singing the song. And as I come around the corner and I'm, I'm clearing the last bit of trees, they're out there and they're tapping on the car and making the rhythm. And Rundgren comes walking out the end of the building because the door was wide open. They were getting some fresh air inside. He says, what the hell is that? I said, 
What are you talking about? That's Little Eva. That's the locomotion. He says, well, get your asses in here because we're going to record the locomotion. And I tell you that we walked into that studio, Sandy, and he hit the red button on the 24 track and he came out into the studio room with us and he sang and he grabbed my Echoplex, the the tape head on my uh, effect for my guitar. And when I was playing the lead, he would run the tape head from one end down to the other, and it sounded like the guitar was eating itself. The husband and wife team of Jerry Goffin and Carol King wrote The Locomotion, which was originally recorded by Little Eva in 1962. It was an unlikely song for Grand Funk Railroad to record, but that little song about a dance craze took the band all the way to number one. More in a sec. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. Grand Funk Railroad founder Mark Farner has been telling us about how it was Todd Rundgren who convinced the band to record the locomotion. It was a tongue-in-cheek kind of thing, and Todd had the idea of doing the song like the Beach Boys' Barbaran. He added a whole lot of hand claps to it to make it sound like there was a big party going on. We had a party in that studio, and it showed up in the grooves, and people loved the locomotion. Well, it's such a happy song, and you guys were in such a happy frame of mind, so it all poured out of you, right? Absolutely. Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Come on, baby, the locomotion. I know you'll get to like it if you give it a chance now. Yeah, I wrote Mean Mistreater when I got down. That was uh, when I first took delivery of my Fender Rhodes piano. I lived in this house I was renting that had a big attic. And it was just one giant room over the house. And I had the people from the music store set it up up there so that I could have all that sound around me. And when they left... And I was the only one in the house. And I went up and I started playing the song. My hands came down on those chords. I'd never played those chords before. I'm not a keyboard player. I'm, this, I, this is just what kind of comes out. It made me very melancholy. Really. Mean mistreater. You make me cry. You lay around. And watch me die, yeah, 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 yeah. Mean mistreater, you make me cry. You lay around and watch me die. like okay and and it's coming back to me in this room that's very uh cavernous 
and the sound carries better than any shower I've ever been in. <laughs> <laughs> and it's coming back to me. And I wrote Mean Mistreater right there. I was inspired by that instrument, Sandy. Another instrument that's inspired you. How incredible. I can't imagine you getting down too often. And most of the songs that Grand Funk did were certainly not melancholy songs, were they? I mean, let's talk about Some Kind of Wonderful, for example. Yeah. Now, that song came about because we were on our way to the the gigs. We were warming up our vocals. We'd sing Locomotion or some kind of whatever, something that was a R&B hit because that's what we listened to growing up. And he was a road manager at the time, Andy Cavalieri, but he turned around and he says, you guys, man, what is that song you keep doing? And we tell him, there's some kind of wonderful. And he says, well, you you guys need to record that. That would be a great song for you guys to record. Well, it was a regional hit. John Ellison wrote the song. He was in a group called the Soul Brothers Six. And that's where we heard it. So we went in the studio with Jimmy Einer, And he was a master with voices on records. He always made the voices come out. The raspberries, he, he he made very good vocal records, like Bad Time to Be in Love. You can hear all of the background vocals, you can hear all the vocals, and, and it's, it's part of the entire sound rather than, you know, a lot of rock music. The vocal will come out once in a while, but it's back in there with the, the mashing jam. But with some kind of wonderful, the way we did it and not having any instrumentation outside of the bass guitar and the drums for the first two verses. And then we go into the uh, can I get a witness part and bam, here comes the B3 organ. Even now today, when we do it on stage, people have to get out of their seat and dance. And I right. love that. still you're playing everywhere people are loving what you're bringing what happens then come 1976 and grand funk decide to split up well we were waiting for don brewer the drummer at the recording studio don was like an hour and a half late and he was never late for anything and we thought man should we start uh, looking around should we call the sheriff's department and see if there's been an accident maybe he's been involved in an act but you know you start thinking, what the hell? Then we hear his car pull in. The door opens, he walks in and he says, guys, I gotta do something more productive, more satisfying with my life. Oh. He says, I quit. And I looks over and I said, what? He, he says, I'm over it. And he turns around and walks out. Just like That's, that? Just that, yep. 
And so from that point, I knew he was serious. And I started calling some musicians that I knew. So from that point, I made two albums on Atlantic Records. And I kept touring because if you don't use it, then you lose it. And of course, uh, you had a ministry of love through your music going too. That was your yeah, mission. Yes, absolutely. And there's only one place you can get a fix for this Jones that I have. <laughs> and that's on the stage, inspiring people to be happy in spite of whatever else is going on in your life. Let's just all be happy right now. Yeah. Good words to remember. We should all take that on board, Mark Farner, for sure. So today you're out there playing with your own band, aren't you? You haven't had a break all these years. You did come back together with Grand Funk for a little while through the 80s and 90s, but now it's you with your own band. What are you doing out there? Mark Farner's American Band. We go out and do the funk stuff. I put in some of the my own you know, solo stuff every once in a while. But we're making people happy. I just returned from a special guest appearance with the Ides of March for an association that puts service dogs in the hands of veterans. So you've spent your time working for charities, working for causes. The lyrics are all about earth and stopping the war, all about love. You know, despite being the ultimate rock star, you're really a down-to-earth guy. You're a husband, you're a father, you're a grandfather, and you've been married to your wife more than 40-something years. That's very un-rock (laughs) star-like. Yeah. (laughs) And she's my better three-quarters, Sandy. Oh, don't I love it. That's awesome. Mark Fano, you are a true gem. I'm so glad we've had this chat, and I thank you for being so generous with your time and sharing your fabulous stories. Of course, a lot of them are written down in the book that you wrote, aren't they? Well, some of them are, but I I have another book to write. (laughs) I imagine you've got lots of stories still to tell. Do you think we'll see that book? Have you got time to put that one down too? Yes, uh, the the people that put out from Chile with love. They want me to to do a book and include an audiovisual DVD in the book of me telling some of the stories, not just reading them from the page, but you know, coming from my lips because there's something in, to be said for that expression. Absolutely. You know? yeah. Serious. Yeah. Uh, I don't know what the name of that will be, but it'll be the continuation uh, from the first book. (laughs) Fabulous. Well, when it comes out, I hope we can have another chat. And in the meantime, why don't you bring your band down to Australia? We'd love to see you here. I would love to come to Australia. And the only reason I'm not all over the world is because my agent hasn't put me there. I climb up his back (laughs) and down his spine.
14 top 40 hits, five top 10 hits, two number ones, 30 million records sold and 16 gold and platinum records. Your contribution has been just awesome and it ain't over yet. We thank you so much for the music and for your time today. Thank you, sister. I appreciate it so much. And I love talking to you, Sandy Kate. You've got it going on. you got a good glow. And I think that we are compatible and that we can have this conversation that goes beyond us into your listeners' ears. And I just like to say something to the listeners. Set yourself free, people. Set yourself free. Nobody can do it but you. Love it. Great message. Mark, great talking to you. All the very, very best. I look forward to the next time we can chat. And I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Bye for now. Mark Farner became a born-again Christian in the late 80s and has put out an array of Christian music ever since. In the 90s, he briefly rejoined Grand Funk and was voted into the Michigan Rock and Roll Legends Hall of Fame as a solo artist in 2015. You can catch up with all his stories in his book, From Grand Funk to Grace. Thanks for lending me your ear today. It's been great having you with me. Don't forget if you have someone special you'd like to hear from, just send me a message through the website of breathoffreshair.com.au and I'll do my very best to get that person onto the show for you. Take care of yourself, won't you, till we meet again. I'll look forward to being back in your company again same time next week. Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. You're gone away It's a beautiful day